One, two, yeah, that's it, we're in, good. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming to my session and not leaving me completely on my own. <laughs> I was beginning to wonder. There's um, just a couple of things. Uh, there is an apostolic son, uh, summit, summit. Yeah, I was reading ahead. Father-son relationship. I went to the last one of these, and it was excellent. This next one is uh, planned for the 1st of December and the 2nd, 7 till 9 in the evening on the 1st, 10 a.m. till 5 p.m., and it's at Sherbert Road, Forest Gate. I would highly recommend it. The last one I went to was really good. Pastor Joseph speaking, Bishop Noel speaking, and Peter Nimbard, Reverend Peter Nimbard speaking. So all of them I've heard speak. They're excellent speakers. It will be worth going to. So let me encourage you, get yourself one of these and book in. Also, just a little bit about myself. I'm Tim Grant. I am an evangelist. Uh, we aren't a dying breed. There are a few of us around still. Uh, and I believe that, you know, God is working powerfully and wants to work powerfully in our nation and throughout the nations. You know, we can often think that Christianity is on the wane. But I want to tell you, worldwide, the statistics say the opposite. Yeah. Christianity is the fastest growing faith worldwide. Here, here in this part of Europe, it's not growing at the moment, but I believe that God wants to raise up an army of people who are ready to share their faith, who will see his kingdom come and his will done. Amen? You know, uh, I often get told by people that, that, you know, God's not really doing things in this part of the world anymore. But I want to tell you, I think he is. And it's about our expectation. You know, I believe that God is speaking far more than he's ever done before. And I believe if we listen to what he's saying, that we will become everything he intended us to believe. You know, in these sessions, we're going to look at how we can effectively share our faith. And I want to start today by looking at some scriptures and lay a biblical foundation for why we should seek to share our faith. The good news, you know. Uh, sometimes you hear people say, well, you've got to share the bad news before you share the good news. I don't believe that, you know. That's not what God told us to do. He told us to go and preach the good news. You know, you go to people and tell them you're going to hell, you know, you'll be lucky if you ever get any chance to speak to them again. You know, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict people of their sin. Our job is to share the good news. 2 Peter 3 Verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What does he say? He's looking for all. That means everyone. There's not a single person that we meet that God hasn't got a plan for their lives that he hasn't got a desire for them to come into a relationship with him. Titus 2. We should never build a doctrine on just one scripture, but if we look at Titus 2, verses 10 to 12, it carries on. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. And finally, 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes to Timothy, says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So just from these three scriptures, we can see that God has a desire. He has a desire to see people come to a knowledge of him, to come into a life-saving relationship with him, to have the abundant life. You know, it's, Jesus said, John 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You know, uh, when I became a Christian, I used to think that God had come that we might have life and have it more miserably. Because when I went to church, I came out more miserable than I went in. You know, everyone around me in the church that I went to looked just so blooming miserable. And, you know, they didn't, you know, they thought, you know, that God wanted you as poor as anything and miserable because that was the best way to be a Christian. But, you know, when I started to read the Bible, I realized that God doesn't want us to have life miserably. He wants us to have life abundantly. And that's good news, isn't it? So it's clear God has a desire that no one should perish. That means everyone you see throughout everyday life, God wants to save them. You know, whenever I think about God's desires, I'm always reminded of David's mighty men. You know, I don't know whether you have heroes of the faith, but David's mighty men are my heroes of the faith, you know. And... uh, they heard their king express a desire, you know, and David said, oh, I'd love to drink water from that well at Bethlehem. And the problem was that the Philistines were encamped at Bethlehem. And these mighty men, they heard their king's desire. They loved him so much that they decided we're going to go and get him some water from that well. And, you know, I don't know whether you, I'm into the sort of, action-adventure type movies. I don't know if you've ever watched the Die Hard movies, but I imagine this a bit like a Die Hard movie, you know. Here are these guys, and they've heard the desire of their king. They love him so much, they want to fulfill his desire. So they sneak into the Philistine camp, you know, and I imagine a couple of them are just watching out for Philistines while another couple are dropping a bucket down the well, and suddenly the alarm goes up, and they're caught. And, you know, Blood and guts are everywhere and they have to fight their way out of the camp. And eventually they come back to their king and they say, you wanted water from the well at Bethlehem. You desired it. We've got it. And they give him the bucket. And David does something very strange. You know, he he looks at them and he says, I'm not worthy of the sacrifice that you were willing to make. They were willing to lay their lives on the line to die for a bucket of water. And he takes his bucket and he pours it out on the ground. He says, I'm not worthy, but I do want to tell you something this morning. Our God is worthy. You know? And his desire is that no one perishes. You know? And he's put his trust in us. We might not all be evangelists, but we are all called to share our faith. To be light in the darkness. You know, 
Are you ready to be his mighty men and women? I believe that God's looking for mighty men and women. And it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're young or whether you're old. He's got great things for you to do. So, God loves this world. He's got a desire that people get saved. The second reason is John 3.16, that God loves the world. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal, for, eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You know, when he talks about, you know, the green people would like us to believe the world God loves is this planet. But I want to tell you, God can just do a flick his fingers and restore this planet to everything that it ever was. The world that God is talking about here is the people that are living on it. And that's okay, come in and sit down. Okay, thank you. You're feeling sorry for me now. <laughs> God loves the people of this world. You know, we need to keep that in mind when we're seeking to share the gospel, the good news with them. That we are ambassadors of a God who loves people. You know, and if you think about how you love people and the way that you treat them and the way that you speak to somebody that you love, that will change the way, hopefully, that we speak to people in this world, the way we share the good news that we found with them. You know, uh, telling them they're going to hell. You know, some people might say that's a loving thing to do. I don't think, you know. But to tell them there's something more is a loving thing. So we're representatives of God's kingdom here on earth. We're called, I, I don't know if you heard of Bill Johnson, he says, from Bethel Church in America, he says, we're called to represent Jesus to the world. You know the word represent? We're called to represent. You're the only Jesus some people will see. We are to be a representation of Jesus to the people we meet. Now, you know, from this uh, scripture in John 3.16, I think there are six points that we can see that are good news. The first one is God loves you. You know, we can tell people that God loves them. He doesn't love everything they do, but he loves them. You know, when my children were growing up and they were naughty, some of the things they did, I didn't like. But I always loved them, and I still do love them. Yeah, so God loves this world. The second thing is that God provided a saviour. You know, mankind was in need of somebody to take their punishment and God provided that person. Jesus came into this world, sent by God, with one purpose in mind, to be the lamb that was sacrificed, that they might have a relationship with God. That's my third point. God sacrificed not just anybody. He loved us so much that he sacrificed his own son. I can't imagine how much love you must have to do that. You know, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to some really dangerous places. 
Uh, I went to Sri Lanka all through the Civil War. And I never feared for my life because I knew God was in charge. But I took my son with me once. And we are going into the war zone. And I want to tell you, it was the first time in my life where I was frightened being there. Because every time I heard a gun go off, I'm stepping in front of my son. Because I love him so much. I don't want any harm to come to him. Yet, the Bible tells us God loved this world. Not just you and me, but the people we meet every day. The good people we meet every day, the horrible people we meet every day. God loved them so much that he allowed his son to come and die the most horrendous death man has ever devised that they might have the opportunity to come into a relationship with him. That's good news, isn't it? You know, that tells us something of the passion and the love that God has for each of us. You know, Third, fourthly, there's a, through Jesus, there's an opportunity to escape judgment. You know, one day this world will be judged. But if we accept what Jesus has done for us, there's an opportunity to escape judgment. That's good news. Believers in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. I think that's quite great as well. You know, exciting. God's desire is to save this world. This word gospel that we use is, means good news. All of these things that have come from John 3.16 I've shared with you are good news. They're good news for people we meet. And uh, they're attractive, I believe. And we're called to tell people the good news. That brings me to my third point. We have a part to play. And that's part of what we're going to look in these sessions. You know, we can see from Scripture when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, he told them to preach the good news. John 10, verse 5. And then he sent out the 70, Luke 10, verse 1. And finally, he commanded all believers to preach the good news. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's saying that, he said to those first disciples that they were to go, the 12, the 70, and then he commanded all of us, not just evangelists. He says, you teach your disciples the things I've taught you. What did he teach them? To go. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Billy Graham who said, surprised his congregation, he said, there are only two things that I can do on earth that I can't do in heaven. And he said, uh, the first thing I can do on earth that I can't do in heaven is sin. God did not leave me on earth to sin. He said, the second thing that I can do on earth that I can't do in heaven is tell people the good news who don't know him. He said, everyone in heaven will already know the good news. So he said, God didn't leave me on earth when I got saved to sin. So he must have left me on earth when I got saved to tell other people. Huh? We have a commission. You know, I read a book recently. It saddened me. It said Christians and non-Christians in the West have one thing in common. You know, I wonder whether it was true with us here. It says they both dislike evangelism. 
non-Christians dislike the way Christians try to push their faith on them. And lots of Christians feel uncomfortable with the methods and ology that we've been taught of how we should tell our faith. How, you know, we must twist every conversation to try and... And we feel uncomfortable with that. You know, that causes us a big problem. Because we have a God who wants us to share our faith, yet we have a people who've become hardened to our methods, both inside the church and outside of the church. You know, and I think... Uh, sorry? I was going to say, it meant to always be through love, love. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest thing that we need to have is love. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what it says. God loved. And no, we have to be his representatives. And he's a God who loves this world. I agree with you entirely. Yeah. You know, yet so often we can look at the examples of evangelists. You know, you look at, you know, some of the good things about evangelists. They're committed. They're bold. They're outgoing. Often they're articulate. They're concerned for others. You know, people like Reinhard Bonker, Billy Graham, you know, they're, they're wonderful people. And then you have the negative examples of evangelists who are obnoxious, pushy, money-grabbing, self-centered, insensitive. You know, we've all seen them on the telly or perhaps you've been to meetings, you know, where, you know, there's some evangelists I don't even take my wallet to a meeting, you know, checkbook or anything. Because, you know, I know that they will pull on my heartstrings and drag every penny they can out of me, you know. And we, we think about these two different examples and we think, well, we could never be the Billy Graham or the Reinhard Bonker. And then we look at the others and we think, well, we don't want to be anything like those sort of people, you know, because uh, that makes us feel uncomfortable. And, you know, that gives us a problem, you know, because we look at these two different stereotypes and we can think, well, I don't want to be like them. Yeah. But I don't believe that God wants us to be like them, you know. I believe, you know, Billy Graham, Rainer Bunker, those sort of people have an anointing from God to be what they are. But we are all anointed to be what he's called us to be. You know, in fact, there are probably a lot of people in this world who would not respond well to the Billy Grahams or the Reinhard Bonkers. But they might well just respond well to you. People that you meet, that you're in a relationship, who like what you are, would be willing to hear the good news from you. The point is that in order to be effective in reaching for pro people for Christ, we don't have to become something odd that we don't want to be, nor do we have to become something great that we might never be. Rather, we have to be ourselves. You know, for me, one of the most releasing things was to realize <coughs> God made me who I am. And he would like to use me as I am. That's, he gave me my personality. He made me the person I am. And he can use me and my gifts just as powerfully as he can use some of these other people like Reinhardt or Billy Graham. You know, I realized as I started to read the scripture that God took people's personalities and their gifts and used them powerfully. You know, Peter in Acts 2 was a bit of a guy like me. He was very confrontational. 
You know, that was his natural personality. He stood up in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus had been crucified just a few weeks earlier, and confronted them with the truth about Christ. Peter didn't soften the message. He let them have it straight between the eyes, didn't he? He said, you killed the Christ! I mean, that's pretty bold, isn't it? You know, these people have just crucified Jesus, and he's telling them, wow, you got it wrong big time. You know, you killed the Christ. You know, I mean, I think, you know, some of us might have been backing off from Peter at that point. You know, really, Peter? You know, they just killed Jesus, and you're getting up saying this? You know, a lot of us might want to back away from those confrontational people. You know, I know I've experienced that when I've done some things. I've seen my friends sort of sliding away. (laughs) They're not comfortable. But that was Peter's personality. He was a straightforward, all-or-nothing kind of guy. It was him who jumped out of the boat. You know, when Jesus Jesus said, you know, come, he didn't hesitate. None of the others got out, but Peter jumped out of the boat and started to walk on the water. (laughs) You know, when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter that pulled his sword out and locked the guy's ear off. You know, that was the sort of guy he was. He was, let's go for it, confrontational. And God used his natural gift on the day of Pentecost powerfully. You know, thousands of people came to know Jesus. If we turn over to Acts 17, we find Paul. And Paul was a completely different character. And we find he's reasoning with these group of people at Athens. They were not the kind of people who would have responded well to a Peter. You know, they were theologians. They were, you know, uh, thinkers. And if Peter had gone in, they would have just dismissed him. But God didn't send Peter. He sent Paul, who was able to reason with them at an academic level. And he spoke to them. And he started with the unknown God and he built a logical and factual case to the point of presenting the resurrected Christ to them. So God used a very different personality with a different group of people, but had powerful results just the same. You know, so he had a reasoning style. So Peter had a confrontational style. Paul had a reasoning style. If you see the blind man in John 9, He's got a testimonial style. He didn't know anything, you know. He was miraculously given his sight back by Jesus. But when questioned by the hostile religious leaders, this man didn't respond by confronting them. He didn't reason with them. But rather, he just told them his experience. He said, I don't know whether this man was a sinner or not. But what I do know is I was blind... And now I see. So he just shared his testimony. We all have a testimony to share. We all have a story. We can all use that powerfully. God's work in our lives. How God changed our lives. Some people are especially suited to share their story. You know, they're very good at you know, relating every situation to something that God's done in them. And because of the credibility they have with their friends, with their colleagues, 
and everything, people are willing to listen to them and they hear what they have to say because, you know, people might argue with your doctrine. They might doubt what the Bible says. But when you share your story, it has power to touch their hearts. So there's a testimonial style. Matthew in Luke 5, 29, has a, a relational style. You know, Matthew had just come to faith and he realized all his tax collecting friends didn't know Jesus. You know, I mean, not surprising. <laughs> There's a difference between not knowing Jesus and not being known, you know. <laughs> uh, so what he does is he invites Jesus and his disciples to come to his house with a meal with all his tax collecting friends. He wants them to rub shoulders with this man that's changed his life. You know, some people have a real gift to be relational. You know, they can, they, their house is always full of people, you know. And, and, you know, if that's you, then, you know, realize that maybe you need to invite people who into that environment that have some of these other gifts who can talk with your friends. You might have the ability to draw them, but you might need to invite other people and use their gifting to bring the gospel into that situation, to the testimonial people, the confrontational people, and and use their gift. You've created the environment. Don't leave it there. People with the relational gift love people on a level that is just beyond me. I, I don't... You know, I don't get it, but I do love to be part of what they're doing. You know, you know there's a scripture that says, uh, uh, others have labored, but you'll enter into their labor. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, you know, I feel as the evangelist, often that's my job. You know? Other people have loved folks, they've cared for them, they've prayed for them, and then suddenly they expose them to me. You know? And then they don't have to take the risk of losing that relationship because they can expose them to someone like me and I can share the good news with them. But that doesn't diminish their ability to draw and gather people in a way that's powerful, that undermines people's preconceptions. Now often people have this preconceptions about Christians and you know this relational evangelism that people have to draw people and love them undermines those preconceptions and slips in under the under the surface and people start to feel good about Christians without ever really knowing what's being the gospel is and then that opens them to hear the gospel because they become hungry for it you know Paul writes to the Colossians he says always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you you know to me that says that you know if you're living the Christian life <laughs> and you're involved with non-believers around you, then ultimately they're going to ask the question. And why is it that you have hope in this world and so many people don't? Why, how can you be so joyful? You know, when my wife was diagnosed with cancer two years ago and people looked at us and they said, how can you be so at ease? I said, because, you know, the worst scenario is if she died tomorrow, we know where she's going. 
this is not the end for us. This is just the preparation for the end. Yeah? And you know, we've been in that cancer clinic on a regular basis over the last two years, and we see people with no hope and no future. And you think, well, maybe we're just here because of that. You know, and the day she had her major operation, you know, we were praying in the ward. And this lady across the way, in a bed across the way, looked over and said, what are you doing? And we said, well, we're just praying. She said, what are you praying for? I said, well, I'm praying for skill of the surgeon. I'm praying that my wife will be strong and come through this operation. She burst into tears. She said, can you come and pray for me? Her family had had to leave. They'd come from a long distance. They needed to go home to do work. And they weren't believers. And she was desperately fearful. And you might think, well, we're in that situation and we didn't want to be there ourselves, you know. But, you know, you lift up your eyes and you see God's at work. You know, and so often we've got our eyes focused on ourselves and we fail to see what's going on around us. And we prayed with that lady. And the next morning she said, you know, it was after she had had her operation, it was actually the next afternoon, she came round from the anaesthetic and she looked over and she went like this. And I went over to see her and she said, thank you. I said, why? She said, I just felt this peace after you and Kim prayed with me. You know, and God's at work. We need to be aware of where he is. You know, show his love to the people of this world. You know, the woman at the well, John 4. She had an invitational style. You know, Jesus talked with this woman at the well and convinced her that he was a prophet from God. <coughs> and he might even have been the Messiah, she thought. And what was her response? She ran back to the people of the town. Her goal was not to personally challenge them with the truth as much as it was to invite them to come and hear a man who told them everything she'd ever done. She invited people. You know, there are people in the church that have this, whatever they're doing, they invite people. You know, their car is always full. You know, if they're going out down to the river to whatever, you know, they don't go on their own. They always have a car full. You know, there's some people that just have this invitational gift, you know. And if we take that natural gift and start to use it to invite people to come to church, you know, it can be powerfully used. I've read a a survey that was done in America. And in America, they said, they'd asked these questions. They, they asked non-believers if somebody they knew who was a Christian invited them to go to church, would they? 25% of the people they asked said, yes, if a friend or a work colleague invited me to go to church, I would go with them. That's one in four people. You know, I thought, just by saying, would you like to come to church with me? You know? I, I wondered whether this was true in England, so I challenged some friends of mine when I was doing something like this. I said, just invite someone to come to church. Next week we had eight new people turn up at church. Because they just, one lady said, I knocked on my neighbor's door and I said, I've just been doing this course at church and they said we should invite people to come to church. I wondered, would you like to come to church? This lady said, ever since I've moved here, she said, I've lost contact with my church because I can't get there. She said, I would love to come to church. Wow. And 
eight people came, you know. If it was one in 20, it would still be worth doing. You imagine you invite 20 people and for every 20 people, one person came to church. You know? The trouble is we invite the one and get a no and we think, oh, I don't want to do that again. You know, we get disappointed. But, you know, if we invite 20 in one come, we should be excited. You know, I was saying to the girls beforehand, you know, I believe that God wants us to see multiplication. You know, no matter how successful I'm, I am as an evangelist, and I've seen thousands of people come to know Jesus, I'm only adding to the church. But if every one of us in the churches we represent saw one person come to the Lord this year, we would start to see the church multiply because we would double our congregations this year. And then if we saw it happen again next year, we would double again and double again. And over a 10-year period, that would be exponential growth. It would be revival. It would be the day of his power. But it's reliant on us. You know, we had a lady in our church, a lady called uh, Winifred. She was in her 70s. She was a lovely lady, but she was a bit grumpy. And we were doing it the Alpha course. And I said to everyone, I, I, being the evangelist, you know, I used to say to our church, you're really unfortunate. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, do the job of an evangelist. I said, God wrote to me and said, do the job of a pastor. I said, I'm an evangelist doing the job of a pastor. Timothy was a pastor doing the job of an evangelist. I said, I feel sorry for you to my congregation. I said, but you know, in the end, I can only be what I am. And I was really ramping up the pressure for them to invite people to the Alpha Gold. And Wynne walked up on her walking sticks and she looked at me and she said, Tim, all my friends are dead. <laughs> so I'm not inviting anyone to the Alpha course. So I said, okay, Wynne. I said, just do me a favor. She said, I'll do whatever you want, but I'm not inviting anyone. <laughs> So I said, okay. She said, what do you want me to do? I said, just go home and ask God what he thinks about what you just said. And if he says it's okay for you not to invite anyone, that's okay with me. <laughs> the next Sunday morning, Wynne turns up to church. And she comes over on her sticks and there's this other old lady next to her and she looks at me and she says, Tim, this is Edna. <laughs> I said, yeah? She said, I haven't seen Edna in 25 years. She said, I was in the shops and I bumped into Edna and we got talking. And Edna's husband has just died. <laughs> and she said, I told Edna how well the church looked after me when my husband died. And Edna said, I would love to be part of a church that looked after me like that. And she said, you can be. We're running a course for people just like you. <laughs> Edna came on the Alpha course and Edna got saved. God answered Wynne's question. It didn't finish there. Edna invited her neighbor and her daughter to the next Alpha course. They got saved. Edna's daughter invited her sister. Edna's neighbor invited her friend. They got saved. In a two-year period, 28 people had come to know Jesus because one old lady said no. That's multiplication. And that's what we're looking for. 
And if an old lady of 70 can say, God, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. And God can bring somebody into her life she hasn't seen in 25 years. You know, I think there's room for all of us. Huh? <coughs> Finally, there's, uh, I'm sure there are other gifts, but this is the final one I'm going to show you. It's the serving gift. It's a great one, you know. If you're a servant, you pick up your ears at this one because it's Dorcas. You know, you heard about Dorcas. You know, she served the saints and her serving and doing good was causing the church to grow. And one day she dies. And the church so much can't do without Dorcas, they beg for something to be done about it. And uh, I think it's Peter comes in and raises her from the dead so that he can put her back into service. You know, this serving gift is a great gift. You know, we serve people. We bless them. You know? And it, it's a powerful gift to use for the kingdom. You know, people, Christians are known uh, so often as do-gooders. And that's a negative thing. Yeah? Actually, I would say we do it because no one else is. You know, uh, when Cameron was... Uh, PM, I read a thing uh, that he had said, it was, you know, he was encouraging the community to get involved. And I read an article that was talking about, he had spoke and he said, actually, we, when we're talking about the community, we're talking about the churches. He said, we don't expect the Muslims, we don't expect the Hindus or the Buddhists to get involved, but we do know the Christian community will get involved because they have a history of doing good and serving people in their community. You know, and as we serve people, it opens doors for us to bring the good news. You know? So if your gift is serving, serve. Serve to the best of your ability. Serve in your community. Serve you know, in the church. Uh, the number of doors. You know, we, as Christians, we're all called to serve. Some people have the particular gift to do it well. You know? But we're all called to serve. When I was pastoring a church, you know, I got involved in the community and served on various committees and things. And it was just amazing the doors that it opened. I remember being asked by a sheltered accommodation project if I would go in and speak to the old ladies and old men. And I went in and it was just, I said, well, I can't do it for a couple of months, but I'll come in in a couple of months' time. And I'd just been to Cambodia and I took some pictures of you know, Cambodian scenery and talked about what I was doing there and, and just 25 minutes. And then at Christmas, I got an invitation from this sheltered home accommodation project. And I arrived and everyone's chatting around. And I sit down at the table for Christmas lunch and all the old people get really grumpy with me. I go, what's that? They said, you're sitting in the wrong place. I'm going, what do you mean I'm sitting in the wrong place? Can't I just sit? No, you're meant to sit there. And at the head of the table, there was all these presents and cakes and stuff. And that was where I was meant to be seated. And they told me they invited 30 people from different organizations in the community to go in and talk. And only one turned up. You know, just to go and serve a group of old people. Everyone else had rejected and forgotten about. You know, opened a great door, because now it's Christmas. And now they're asking me to talk at Christmas lunch. And now I'm talking about 
what Christmas is about and how God loves them and you know it's not too late you know yeah, they might not I, I said you might not have much time but you have enough time <laughs> uh, they appreciated my humor so but you know we can serve people sometimes we get opportunities to serve and we just don't know what doors they will open for us so I'd encourage you, you know, perhaps your gift is serving if it's not serving we're all called to use that. You know, we need to remember, we're not just serving the people, we're serving God through serving them. And our service will open doors to evangelize. It's important for us to realize that God knew what he was doing when he created us, the people we are. He gave you the personality that you've got and he wants to use that personality to see his kingdom expand. Effective evangelism flows out of, as our friend here said, a loving relationship with Christ where his love passes through us to the people that we meet every day. You know, Christianity is demonstrated by lives that have been noticeably marked by God's love and leadership. Jesus said, if we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear much fruit. You know, I don't think that's just, he's talking just about the fruits of the spirit there. I believe he's talking about the fruits of people's lives coming out of darkness into light. So instead of trying to be something we're not, evangelism should reflect our own personality. It fits who we are. It puts others at ease and gives them assurance that what we have is real and worth looking into. When it comes to reaching people who need Christ, there are many different ways we can do that. Yeah. In the next session, we're going to talk about sharing our story, but uh, it has to come from love. It has to be motivated by seeing what God is doing in people's life. You know, I, I, uh, Kim's been unwell, and you know, I've been in England a lot more than I have in the past few years. And I just needed to get out of the house for a while, so I joined a model aeroplane club. You know, I've got a now got a five-foot wingspan radio-controlled plane and I go flying it. And I was at this club and uh, one of the old guys that are there, they're all mostly older than me, a lot older than me, and one of the old boys came up to me, he said, you're a bloody Christian, aren't you? <laughs> I said, excuse me? He said, you're a bloody Christian. I said, what makes you think that? He said, well, do you believe in a literal six-day creation? I said, yes, I do. He said, do you believe in a virgin birth? I said, yes, I do. He said, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? I said, yes, I do. He said, you're a bloody Christian. What are you doing here? Then it turns out he's a complete atheist. And he came up to me. He got right, I mean, he's about 80. Got right in my face. He said, I'm going to have you. I looked at him. I said, you are ought to be really grateful I'm a Christian. So he said, why? I said, I used to be a hell's angel. 
I said, and I would have decked you for what you've just said if I wasn't saved by Christ. He looked at me. Every time I go now, he has a go at me. You know, and he, got, he started on about creation the other day. He said, well, how can you believe Genesis? And he just started having a go at me. I said, excuse me. So I said, I just need to go back to the car. I went back to the car, got my phone, came in with my Bible, and we started reading Genesis. So, and I'm sharing about creation and all that. And uh, he said, oh, it's a fairy tale. You know. But then I noticed now we have 12 guys sat down on the grass all listening to the conversation. Eventually, this guy gets up and walks off. But the 12 guys sit there asking questions. You know? You know? I could have been antagonistic with this guy. I could have been aggressive to him. But God was <laughs> using him to open other doors. Well, I wasn't a hell's angel. I was in a motorcycle gang. Oh. But <laughs> it wasn't the angels. But yeah, I was in a motorcycle gang, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, God saved me out of that, thank the Lord. But, uh, yeah. So there was an element of... <laughs> well, it was true, you know. I would have decked him, yeah. <laughs> there is no doubt about that, yeah. <laughs> I used to carry a, a bicycle chain in my pocket. And <laughs> I didn't fight fair. <laughs> but, you know, God loves people. And, you know, sometimes, you know, even this man, you know, I believe that God's put him there with a purpose, you know. The first time he had a go at me, he left, and a guy came up to me and said, Tim, can we talk? I said, yeah. He said, he said my son was killed in a motorcycle accident three months ago. He was 40. He said, where do you think he is now? <laughs> and we just sat and chatted. Another guy came up to me and said, Tim, I've got to go into hospital for an operation on my eyes. I'm frightened that I'm going to lose my sight. Can you pray for me? A lady came up to me. She said, Tim, I'm backslidden. She said, I haven't been to church in years. She said, do you think God still loves me? You know, God didn't call us out of this world. We are in this world but we're not part of this world. We're in it with a purpose. You know, we don't need to be under pressure about sharing our faith you know, in ways that we feel uncomfortable with. But we do need to be ready to share our faith in the ways that God's given us, in the abilities that he's given us. Whatever they are, he wants to use those abilities and can use those abilities to see his kingdom come and his will done here on earth. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think it was Joe, Joe Aldridge in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, put it this way. He said, you need to be good news before you can share good news. You know, uh, my neighbor, well, a few years ago, they moved into the house next door to us. And, you know, we're having that conversation over the fence. And I never ask people what they do for a living. Because, you know, if you ask somebody what they do for a living, the first question they're going to ask you is what you do for a living. 
you know, I've, I've found that telling them you're an evangelist for the Almighty God stops the conversation pretty quickly. <laughs> but I could see that, you know, me not asking what he did for a living was building up the pressure in him because he wanted to know what I did for a living. <laughs> and eventually he said, Tim, what do you do for a job? I said, well, actually, I'm an evangelist working for a church. He said, really? He said, you seem quite normal. <laughs> I said, yes. He said, don't you try to save me. In fact, he used a bit more colorful language. <laughs> so uh, they were away. He was an, a geologist and he was away in Oman and we had a storm and lots of tiles came off our roof and lots of tiles came off his roof. So I went down to the builders merchants and bought tiles and put, replaced the tiles on his roof and replaced the tiles on my roof. And one of the neighbors, other neighbors said, oh, Tim was up on your roof replacing tiles while you were away. And he turned, he said, Tim, what did you do? I said, well, I bought tiles for my own roof. And I said, when I was on my own roof looking at how many were missing, I noticed you'd lo lost some, so I just bought them and replaced yours. He said, weren't you gonna say anything? I said, no, I said, it's just, you know, didn't take me five minutes to do yours. He said, that was really kind. I said, it's not a problem. I said, we're neighbors, you know. And uh, then I came home in the spring and with all these boxes of flowers and my wife looked at me, she said, you do realize you've bought too many flowers for our garden? I said, no, I haven't bought too many flowers. She said, yes, you have, there's way too many flowers there. And we put them in, in the garden and there are three boxes left over. <laughs> and she said, I told you so. I said, no, I said, because now you'll see what I'm gonna do with these three boxes. And I walked next door, I knocked on the door, I said, excuse me, auntie, I said, I bought way too many flowers for my garden. Would you like some for yours? Him and his wife said, we were only thinking we were going to go and buy some flowers for our garden today. So I gave them the three boxes. You know? We get a, a knock on our door a few months later. And it's Andy. He's an atheist. He tells me he's an, he's an atheist. He said, Tim, he said, Alison's just gone into a premature labor. labor. The baby was born, I think it was two kilos, 4.2 pounds, 4.4 pounds, very light, very in intensive care. He said, can you pray, an atheist, can you pray for Alison and the baby? We pray. He's a big strapping lad now. A few months later, Alison, who's an atheist, knocks on our door. She said, Tim, you know you prayed for our baby? I said, yeah. She said, can you pray for Andy? He went in for a hernia operation and they slipped and they punctured his lungs. He's now on a ventilator in intensive care and they're not sure he's gonna make it. We prayed. He got healed as well. If you are good news to people, they start to see there's something different. And God's love flows to them and opens their heart, even as an atheist. You know? I do this other thing which I call apologetic evangelism. And uh, I'll probably get you to do that in the next session. But I, I say to people, you know, write out your story in a way non-Christians will understand. And then go and ask a non-Christian to read it. You know, and I went to Andy and Alice next door. I, I've done it with a group like you. 
and I knocked on their door I said I'm doing this course with these people from church and I've asked them to write out their story in non-religious language in a way I said you couldn't help me out I said I'm in a really tough place I don't know many non-Christians and I said I feel like I should be doing this as well I said could you please help me out I said just read my story and tell me whether you understand what I'm saying he said oh leave it with us so two days later I knocked on the door I said did you get a chance to read my story he said yeah he said come in we want to talk to you then spent two hours with him and his wife sharing the gospel right? if we love people if we are ourselves with people and we build up that credibility then they will start to ask what it is that makes us different and at that point we have to say something yeah and we'll talk about that in the next session you know uh, you have to be good news before you share good news billy graham put it this way he said preach the gospel at all times and sometimes use words you know sometimes use words you know when everyone else is moaning about that miserable be beggar at work that nobody likes find something good about them you know i, th I heard somebody crit being crit criticizing somebody else for, and all the things they were saying was true and there was another person involved in the conversation and she looked she said but he has beautiful eyes and I thought, I knew this other person was a Christian, you know, and I thought, she's looking for something good about this person. You know, when everyone else is complaining about the boss, look to say something positive. Be different when everyone else is stealing. Be honest. You know, our lives need to preach the good news to people. People need to see the gospel in what we are and what we do. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. That light will guide people into his kingdom. You know, uh, when my son was eight years old, we rented a 42-foot catamaran with, I think there were six dads and six sons. And it was great because they were all non-Christians apart from my son and I. And we sailed out of the Hamble into the Solent and our plan was we were going to sail out round the Isle of Wight and down to the Channel Islands over the weekend and we'd heard there was a force 8 gale coming and our goal was that we'd get out in front of it when we got out into the, the English Channel we'd be in front of it and it would blow us all the way down to the Channel Islands unfortunately we weren't quite as good sailors as we thought we were and we sailed out around the end of the Isle of Wight to the point of no return, the commitment, and realized we'd sailed into the middle of the Force 8 gale. The waves, I think they had a 25-foot mast, were breaking over the top of our mast. The boat was being thrown in every direction. All our kids were on safety lines as they heaved up over the side. It was terrifying. And I, I'm, I'm sailing, you know, steering this ship or yacht down the side of the, the Isle of Wight and we come past the needles and in the distance I see this red and green light. Now at every harbour in the world as far as I understand at the entrance to the harbour on one side there's a red light and on the other side there's a green light and if you sail between them you'll sail in safe water into the harbour and I saw the red and green light of Paul Harbour 
and I turned the tiller of the boat and we sailed towards them. And when we went between those lights, we came out of the storm into the calm. And I thank God. <laughs> and Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You are the light at the entrance to the safe harbour. He says, let your light shine. You know, this world is, people are going through all sorts of storms. And, you know, we're not called to react to the storm. We're called to be light in the storm. You know, we don't have to worry about the storm because we have a God who loves us. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, whatever we need for life, if you read the, big, the, the, the earlier verses in Matthew 6, he's talking about clothing, he's talking about food, he's talking about everything that we need to live a happy life. He said, if you put God first, if you seek God's kingdom, all these things will happen, you know. When this country went into recession, you know what hit me? I thought, actually, there is no recession in God's kingdom. And you know, uh, I heard charities' incomes were dropping dramatically because of the recession. So I said to Kim, you know what? This year we're going to give more than we've ever given. Because God's kingdom is not in recession. So we chose some charities and we gave more than we had ever given. And over that year, as the recession got deeper and deeper, the beginning of the next year, we were so blessed, I said to Kim, let's double the extra we gave last year. And we doubled it. And you know, at the end of that year, we were more blessed than we'd ever been. And you know, I just felt God saying to me, double it again. So we doubled the double that we were giving. And you know, we went through the recession and we never noticed. Because there is no recession in God's kingdom. We bless people around us, we bless Christians, we bless non-Christians. Because we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We do not need to worry. You know, we don't need to worry about ISIS. You know, I think it's great that we've got so many Muslim people coming to our country. You know why I think it's great? Because some of the countries they're coming from, we would be never allowed to go and preach the gospel. Yet God is bringing them here so we can preach the gospel to them here. Yeah. And if we see them safe, we can send them home as Christians yeah. when their countries become more stable and they can bring about transformation in their nation. You know, Jesus said, go into all the world. Well, you only have to go into London <laughs> and you can meet the whole world. Is it not true? Or Birmingham? Huh? Uh, if we as Christians have a siege mentality and think, oh no, the country's going to the dogs, we've got all these Muslims and other people coming here, then we will back off and won't be the light. God's bringing them here with a purpose because he's trusted us to bring life to them. Will you be God's mighty men and women? Will you use the gifts that he's given you? Or will you put your light under a bushel? You know, we have a saying, don't we, here in England? Actions speak louder than words. If our lives don't match our words, our words will lack, lack power and be ineffectual. 
So as I've said, effective evangelism flows out of a genuine, living, loving relationship with Jesus, where his love passes through us to others. Christianity is demonstrated by lives that have been noticeably marked by God's love and direction. You know, we're called to be believers, you know, not submarines. I say you know, uh, Second World War submarines, you know, they traveled faster on the surface, you know, and then when trouble came along, what did they do? They went below the surface, you know, and I meet a lot of Christians like that, you know, on a Sunday morning, midweek, they're, oh, praise God, you know, he's wonderful, at the prayer meeting, Lord, send revival to our nation. Then on Monday morning, they just blow below the surface till the end of the week and come back up at the weekend. We're meant to be light. Light in a dark place. Yes. You know, that might be as simple as on a Monday morning when people say, what did you do at the weekend? You say, oh, well, we laid in Saturday morning, had a slow start today, went shopping in the afternoon, went to see a film in the evening. Sunday morning we went to church, Sunday afternoon we went and spent some time with our family. It might be as simple as that, but you've just put the flag up. I have a spiritual side. You know, so often when we tell people what we did on a weekend, we say, oh, we had a slow start Saturday, went shopping Saturday afternoon, went to a film Saturday evening, Sunday afternoon we spent with the family. And we miss the fact that we have a spiritual side. You know, if people are looking for answers about spiritual things, they will want to ask people they know. And if you haven't put the flag up, if you haven't let the light shine to say, I'm a believer, I have a spiritual sign, it won't be you they're asking. So, let's pray, shall we? Father, Thank you for all your love towards us, Lord. Thank you that you've made us the people that we are, Lord. That you gave us our personalities. You made us individuals, Lord. You didn't squeeze us through some sort of sausage machine and make us all the same, Lord. You gave us infinite diversity, Lord. And infinite different personalities. Father, we just lift our hands to you and say, Lord, here we are. Use what you made, Lord, to bring glory to you, to lead people out of darkness and into light. Amen. Amen. Any questions? I've been told you need to have time for questions. I always find this the... Go You must have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, people say there's no God? I say, well, I was talking with him this morning. <laughs> um, I say, look around you. Can all this be an accident? You know, uh, you know there are, I, I love this statistic I came across which said uh, that if you took all the parts of a Rolex watch and put them in a bag and shook it and then emptied it onto a desk, 
there is more likelihood a working, ticking Rolex would fall out of the bag than the world happened by accident. You know, if the world pivoted one degree either way on its axis, it would not be habitable. If we were one mile closer to the sun, I think, we would not be habitable. If we were one mile further away from it, it would not be habitable. You know? You look at the complexity of a, a hand or, and everything in it. You, this happened by accident? Can you really believe that? You know, uh, they teach in schools now <coughs> Darwin's theory of evolution as Darwin's fact of evolution. But even now, it's only a theory. People accept it as a fact, but there are huge gaps in it. Darwin himself said 125 times, let us assume, which means I have no proof for what I'm about to say whatsoever, but I'll assume this is true. And the trouble is, all through the years, people have assumed it and assumed it and assumed it. You know, and I don't think you can look at creation in all its splendor and think that there isn't a creator. And even scientists now, secular scientists, are they are believe they're not calling it God, but they're calling it intelligent design. There is some intelligence behind what we have. So that's that's the sort of thing I would say to them. There's some very good books. Uh, there's um, Josh McDowell did a, a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and there's another one, second one called Ev More Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which is very good reading. You know, we need to be prepared to answer some of these questions yeah. and we need to put some work in for those yeah. things. So they're good books to read. Yeah, I always like to personalize it. That's why I always start with, I was talking with him this morning. Because, you know, they can argue with my doctrine, they can argue with what I say the Bible says, but when I say, I was talking with him this morning, you know, that's difficult to argue with. You know, if they know you, uh, you know, and they, you've gained some credibility with them and you start saying things like that, they're either going to think you're an idiot, or you're going to start to undermine their preconceptions, you know. So to bring it personal, you know, I, you know, I said, well, I was talking with them, and they said, oh, don't, what's really, I said, well, I had a life-changing experience 40 years ago. They said, pardon? I said, well, I was in a motorcycle gang, and I met God. And they said, how? What happened? And then I said, you know, we're going to be talking about telling our story. Our story is powerful. Tomorrow we're going to talk about it. But I start to share my story, because I try to keep it personal. You know, I'm not a Paul. You know, Paul, if I was a Paul, I could do the, you know, the, 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 the whole thing, you know, the, the, the academic thing. But I'm not, so I try to keep within my gift. And my gift is to tell my story and, to, you know, how I met a God that changed my life. And, you know, and that I find works very powerfully for me. But for every one of us, it will be different. We do need, you know, um, Nicky Gumbel did another book. Um, I'm trying to think what it was called. But he did a book which answers a lot of the questions that people ask. Not uh, Questions of Life, the Alpha Course, but there was another one he did. Um, Sorry? Yeah, 
I don't know whether it's called, no, it's the, the one I'm thinking about is not called Tactics, but if you search under Nicky Gumbel on Amazon, all the books will come up, and one of them is about answering questions people. He, he takes, I think, the 10 most common questions people ask and gives you a, an answer. And it's worthwhile doing some research and doing those things so that you are prepared. You know, Paul, I think it was Paul again who wrote, said, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you. You know, and those sort of things are worth researching and being prepared, yeah. You know, I, yeah. It's time to finish, isn't it? It is indeed. Councillor, when you finish, I'll yes. ask my question. Yeah, I've finished. Ask your questions. I can go on forever. My wife tells me too long. <laughs> She's next door, so I can do what I like. <laughs> Please, yeah, come on. the aeroplane um, club yeah. you go to, but you had this atheist guy come to you and say, like, I'm going to have you. Mm. Um, it, it's similar to my experience as well, um, being at work. Yeah. Uh, I've come across all kinds of um, believers. I've come across all kinds of people who not necessarily believe in the, um, the create, creator. So one of the questions I find very challenging and difficult is when they actually, you know, really... Um, it was almost like insulting my faith. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a guy at work, and as I, I'm saying this, I'm asking, I'm glad to answer this question. I'm just seeing him, in, in, you know, in my mind's eye, saying to me, "Frankly, mm -hmm. do you believe in all that malarkey, Mary becoming yep. pregnant, the Holy Spirit of the shadow?" And I said, "Yes, I do believe." They said, "No, nah, mate, Mary was raped." Do you believe, frankly, that? The world, I mean, literally, just uh, it's the whole questions that you're going through. And I'm like, yeah. And as he was doing this, you know, I've got my colleagues, you know, the table, they're all looking at me. And you'd be like, what an embarrassment. Like, you know, you must have been cool, cool just to believe in. Mm -hmm. like, it's just almost so. The question is, how do you, you know, deal with um, people that are set up to embarrass Christians? They really just, their whole aim to make us feel inadequate or stupid mm -hmm. that we believe in something as truthful as you, know, uh, you and I can mm -hmm. relate to, that there is God. I just want to know, whether I've been referring to the apologist, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. I uh, try not to get embarrassed because it's not me they're picking at, it's God. You know, and you know, you can, people can make you feel very inadequate. But you know, whenever you're having a conversation with somebody, always have a conversation this way and this way. You know, because sometimes, you know, God will do things. I remember years ago, I was at college and I was in the student union common room and this guy was wiping the floor with me. You know, he was giving me such a hard time and, and, and I'm having this conversation with him and I think, Lord, I do not know how to answer him. And I'm being honest, I'm saying, look, I haven't got all the answers. You know, but this is what I believe. You know, and I'm just sharing my experience. And eventually this guy gets up and he throws his chair across the student union common room and he walks away and he shouts back. He said, you might be winning this argument, but I'm coming back tomorrow with some more questions. And I'm going like, my perception of everything that was going on in the room at that moment was he was wiping the floor with me and I looked the biggest idiot that anyone could look. But I was asking God what to say and, you know, God was giving me words that were beyond my, what I was seeing, were cutting to his very heart, you know. And 
And when I often say to people, we, we're not called to win the argument, we're looking to win the individual. We might lose the argument, but win a soul. You know, and, and you know, it's a little thing to be embarrassed. You know, Christians around the world are being beheaded. There's all sorts of horrendous things going on, you know, and a little bit of embarrassment is a minor thing. I think what we have to learn from those embarrassments is that we need to be better prepared. You know, I often say to people, have you ever walked away from a conversation and when you've walked down the road thought, oh, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. And then my encouragement to you is be better prepared. You know, if God, you, God loves these people, then uh, we should have a passion for doing our best to see them come. Yes. From someone who has been giving months to me, he keeps rejecting the word of God, mm. and uh, um, his reason is that he used to be a member of the Church of England, and he heard that Cain killed Abel, and they were the first family. Mm. And Cain killed Abel and ran away from the family. And sometimes, somewhere, he got a wife and made another family. And he says, because of this, he believes, uh, he doesn't believe the gospel. Mm. So, I want something to tell this man. <laughs> you know, the thing is that sin's been around a long time. You know, that's why I say to people. How can got a wife somewhere? Because they were supposed to be the first family. Well, clearly God made more than that, didn't he? You know, I mean, the fact that there were other people outside. Adam and Eve were in the garden, but clearly God did something more because they found that partners outside of the garden. So, you know, we don't, the Bible doesn't deny that. He states it. It states it that, you know, there were other people around. So I, say, I often say to people, well, you know, we don't know all the ins and outs of these things. What I do know is that this man sinned. He killed his brother. It shows that that just confirms what I believe, that every one of us has short, fallen short of God's standard. Inherently within us, there is a, you know, a desire to sin. And the only way we can have a relationship with God is through what he did, the good news. You know. So that's what I say. But you know, if someone's dying, we need to love them. You know? And uh, you know, I always say to people, I'm praying for you. you know, even the atheist. I, I told him, I'm praying for you. And his wife was not well. And I said, I'm praying for your wife. You know, and prayer has an amazing way to change people. You know, we were in Bulgaria. And the Orthodox priest told the mayor of the town we were in that we were giving drugs out at our crusade because everyone was so happy. <laughs> so the mayor took our permission for the crusade away because we were giving out drugs. And I went to see him, and he refused to see me because I wanted to tell him we were not giving out drugs. And then I heard the next day that it was his birthday. And in Bulgaria, if it's your birthday and you're the mayor, you receive gifts from people in your community. <laughs> so we turned up at his office with a gift, and he had to see us. <laughs> uh, so we took a gift in for his birthday and gave it. And he said, who are you? I said, I'm the man from the crusade. You've just stopped. And he realized, oh, <laughs> he had banned it. 
told his staff not to let us in, but because we had a gift, he had to let us in. And he talked, and we talked with him. And at the end of the day, he said, I've made my decision. I said, but your decision is wrong. He said, but I've made my decision, and I can't change it. And we're walking out the door. And he's not changed his mind at all. And God said to me, ask him how about his father and mother. So I looked at him, and I just felt God gave me two words of knowledge, one for his father, one for his mother. I said, has your mother got this problem? He said, yes. I said, has your father got this problem? He said, yes. He said, how did you know? I said, God just told me. I said, can we pray for them? He said, it won't change my opinion. <laughs> I said, that's okay. I said, because God loves you and your family, and he's clearly told me about your mum and dad because he loves them as well. So I said, let's pray that his health will come upon them. So we prayed with him for his mum and dad that they would be healthy and strong. And we went back and were preparing to set packed down our equipment and everything, and my phone rang, and it's his secretary. And she said, the mayor's just told me to phone you and tell you he can't give you your permission to continue your mission, but he's phoned the chief of police, and he's phoned the chief of the fire brigade and told them not to come down that street. So you just carry on and no one will stop you. <laughs> Prayer, you know, when we love people that persecute us, when we show them God's love, offer to pray for them, changes things. You know, two policemen turned up two days later. They walked up to the, at the tent and they said, excuse me, you, you haven't got permission to do this event. I said, I know. He said, well, you need to take your tent down and go because the Orthodox priest had wound them up and sent them down. I said, you need to speak to your boss. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, just phone your boss and talk to him. So he phoned his boss and he said, uh, you need to go. I said, tell your boss to phone his boss. Two minutes later, these policemen came back and they said, we're very sorry, we're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we love people, yeah. it changes things. Yeah, please. Um, so I have a friend who's recently got engaged, but he's gay. Yeah. So um, he's like a really good friend of mine, but I'm not sure how to share the gospel when they have like a strong viewpoint that they're born gay. That kind of thing. So how would you deal with yeah, I, 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 I don't feel that, you know, if I'm talking to an adulterer, I don't pour out the fact that he's an adulterer. I tell him that God loves him. If I'm talking to a homosexual, I don't say, you know, you're a sinner, you're a homosexual, you're a sinner. I tell, tell them God loves them and has got something better for them. I, I, I try to always emphasize that whatever people have, there is something better. You know, a relationship with God is better. You know, when you fill your focus with God, sin drops away. If we become sin conscious rather than God conscious, we constantly get this condemnation. You know? And I, I, you know, I think that actually, you know, the homosexual, I've dealt with a number of homosexuals over the years. And as they've got to know God and experience God's love, I've found that, that deception falls away. I think so often as Christians, we get caught arguing things that we don't need to argue. And to be honest with you, the homosexuals and the, the you know, but transsexuals, all that, they have an agenda. They want us to get on ground that they think we can't win on. And I don't think we need, because they take us off the ground that we're called to speak on. You know, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin 
But if we go into what is the Holy Spirit's job, we're stepping out of our realm of where we're meant to work. We have a very clear commission. We're called to give good news. We're not called to condemn. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to convict. He doesn't condemn, he convicts people. So, you know, they might have different lifestyles, but just as the adulterer or the drunk, homosexuality to me is no worse sin than those, yet we've made it a worse sin. Now, we don't accept those sins, but we know if people meet Jesus, it modifies their behavior. And, you know, we had a guy that came into the church, well, a woman and a guy came into our church, and they were both, there was a word, I had a word of knowledge, there's a woman here who's living with a man who's not a husband. And she came forward that Sunday morning, and she said, it's me. She said, I left my husband last week and have set up home with this man I work with, and he's left his wife, and we're living together. And she said, I couldn't believe what you said this morning. How did you know? I said, God told me. And uh, we chatted, and I led her to the Lord that day. She didn't stop living with the man. The Pharisees in my church said, you should have told her she can no longer live with this man. And I said, as she sees God, I believe that things will change. Well, it had better change, because we're not going to let you be our pastor if you put up with this sort of behavior. You know, They'd been saved five minutes. You know, when I got saved, if you knew what I was doing, you'd have kicked me out of the church. I was still doing drugs and sleeping with girls and, you know, but I got saved. But it took a few weeks for God to change some of those things. You know? But he did. And, you know, within two weeks, her boyfriend got saved. Six days after he got saved, he said, Tim, can you help me find somewhere to live? I said, why? He said... I feel really, un- be really uncomfortable being in the same bed as uh, this girl. He said, actually, I don't think I should even be sleeping in the same house. Nobody had said anything to him. The Holy Spirit had convicted him. Yeah? Now, I think as we love people, you know, maybe you know, there's a place where you know, if they get saved, that and, and you know they're continuing in sin, there's a place for discipleship. And that's done out of a loving relationship and you lovingly lead them into something better. But when they're non-Christians, to expect them to live by a Christian standard, we couldn't do it before we were saved. It's only by the fact that we have the Holy Spirit in us that we can live the Christian life. And even then we still fall short I mean, I guarantee if, I, if we were all really honest with each other, we'd say that we've sinned this week. We've fallen short. And what makes our sin that we've sinned this week worse than theirs? You know, let's take the log out of our own eye before we try and take the speck out of other people's. You know? And I do think that God is gracious. I don't think we change what we believe. But I, I don't think it needs to be the first thing on our agenda with people. The first thing is that we need to preach the good news. Yeah. Last question. Last question. It will be the last question because we've run out of time. Yeah, I, I just, in following from um, questions I've just asked, <laughs> I just met transgender <laughs> yeah. lawyer yesterday arguing a case uh, for a client. And I, I mean, I, I must admit, I just didn't know what just threw me. Like, mm. you know, Lord, uh, it's just, attempt to 
for me to be desensitized or just because everything it, it, I couldn't just dress up a man dressed up in a woman clothing with a lipstick with a stubble mm. and you know it's just like I couldn't even focus on what the person was saying with a man's voice mm. and I was like Lord what is going on you know and rather I didn't realize that it had an effect on me mm. you know rather than me being as a Christian I suppose we don't think we're going to come in contact with these things and I just wanted to know um, without us really becoming you know, uh, desensitized to these things and not just accept it as normal mm. what would you well we had exactly the same happen in our church uh, a guy turned up his name was Chris sometimes he turned up as Chris sometimes he turned up as Christine <laughs> Uh, he was married for 40 years, his wife died, and when she died, he started wearing her clothes and dressing up, putting a wig on and coming to church, and, and we loved him. And uh, you know, I, I just sort of said, what's going on here, God? And in the end, you know, God said to me, he's accepted a lie, and if you love him, I'll lead him out of it. And we just loved him. And, uh, you know, People in the church, it was really funny because we had one old couple who didn't realize Christine was a Chris, the same person, and they invited Christine to dinner, and I just knew I had to say something because I knew they were going to flip out when they suddenly realized Chris was, Christine was Chris, but um, you know, we loved him, and slowly but surely, God touched him, and, and he stopped wearing the clothes. You know? Another church I pastored for a number of years, we had a guy who was going for an operation to be turned into a lady, you know. And I, I have to look, I, I did a lot of research at that time, uh, medical stuff and everything, and I could find no real evidence for there being a medical reason for transgender. The closest I could get to it biblically was that he was a eunuch. You know, it says some are born that way and some are made that way by the hands of men. You know, you know they have different emotional feelings. And so I, I told him that and he nearly hit me. So that didn't, wasn't quite the right answer he was looking for either. But I do believe it's a deception, and like any deception, when people come to know the truth, the truth will set them free. In the meantime, we do need to show them God's love. We don't accept their behavior just the way we wouldn't accept a, a drunk or an adulterer's behavior, but we do need to love them. And I think a healthy church has those sort of people coming in. I think we're going to have these problems more and more. We're going to have these people coming into our church. Now, some will be coming in because they have an agenda, and their agenda is to change what we believe. Now, that can't happen. We have to live our lives and have our doctrine based on what the Word of God says. But, however aggressive they are, we have to be Christ to them as well. You know, and you see Christ in all the people he met, the woman caught in adultery and all that, you know. She should have been stoned along with the man. But Christ found a way of saying something that saved her. And then what did he say? Don't go and sin anymore. You know? So he didn't accept her behavior. He accepted her, though. He loved her, but he didn't accept her behavior. So, yeah, I realize we've way over time. Well, I hope that helps. We're back tomorrow, so if you've got more questions, please come back and ask the questions tomorrow. Thank you for listening. So.
graciously. Bless you. Enjoy your lunch. Don't forget the summit, Apostolic Summit. Get yourself one of these and book up on it.